Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we are back with part two of our three-part series of highlighting youth activists who attended COP27. Currently, I'm at COP15, so, you know, there is some delays with posting these um, because I've been very busy organizing for COP15. I had my own event, which was pretty awesome, but I don't want to take too much time right now. Um, so we have three amazing activists that are going to be on this episode, and they are Maria Sarah Alavella, Finier Ricard Anderson, and Angela Zong. I'm so excited to share with all of you their amazing experiences at COP27 and what they took away from COP27 and what what they learned and what they shared with us because I think it's not only important just to go to COP27 to learn for oneself but also to disseminate that information to people who weren't able to get there and to really see behind the scenes of what happened at COP27. So our first guest speaker for this episode is Maria Sara Alavella. Maria is a student at Blanquerna Universita Roman Lowell pursuing a degree in international relations. She is the co-founder of Fridays for Future Barcelona and has organized with ReEarth.org, Societa Nova Geographica, and Oxfam Interman. She is an experienced media spokesperson, having appeared on the main Spanish media like Time Out Barcelona, El Periodico, El Nacional, FAQ TV3, and Catalonia Radio. Likewise, she is now a key actor in conversations around climate change, both in Spain and in Europe. Maria attended COP25 as a Spanish youth delegate and a media and press organizer for Friday for Future. After a year off due to health issues, Maria returned to activism by creating and working on different tools to help the youth mobilize. One of them is a course on activism with over 300 students and 40 professors to introduce young people to activism. Another key tool for activism is social media, and Maria is now a key member of Kerr's team, a new social media made with ethics and social change in mind. Trying to revolutionize social media in order to create social change is the main objective of the platform, as well as taking care of our democracy and young people. She has recently been recognized as a European Climate Pact Ambassador. So I'd love to welcome Maria Sara Alavella. So hi, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's exciting. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear what you have to say about COP. So can you please describe your experience at COP27 as a youth activist? Absolutely. I think COPs are at most an absolute intense place. Like if you had to describe COP in a word, it's probably an intense. It's very intense in a good and bad way. I think there's a lot of good happening. You meet a lot of people that you haven't met in ages that like you've been working with for a long time, but you haven't met. There's a lot of networking going on. People mostly go at the COP to network actually. Um, so there's a lot of good things happening. You meet a lot of people doing amazing things. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of hope building in that way, but there's also so much uh, tension. Like I remember uh, last week when there was like everything happening with the EU and the policies. There's so much tension. There's like a feeling of heaviness in the air that I describe as like very very intense. Um, so it's always very intense. I would say that my experience this cup has been a bit worse than like maybe other cups. It's like other cups were a bit more fun, I believe, because 
probably because of the context, like they were not in Egypt, they were like in places where you could just go for beers afterwards, or like there was maybe in like the youth sphere, a bit more of like fun. Um, this cup was definitely way more serious to me, it was way more to the point. There was more um, worries and expectations. We definitely felt less safe. Uh, I as a person felt way less safe. Uh, there was a sense of being watched and vigiled and like actually like kind of like in a creepy way like you know like taxes had the cameras you felt like you couldn't like maybe download things like you were into the cops wi-fi and you didn't feel safe that has never happened to me before so like there was a lot of adjusting to that I think but it's from my privilege just adjusting to uh, a regime that it's not as democratic as I'm used to which is totally a, a privileged thing to say but there is a lot of adjusting that comes with it um in terms of work it was a good cop I think for many youth there was a lot of networking to do um we did we, we were given a space at cop it was the first time in history that youth has its own pavilion which is good because like it meant that we had somewhere to go. It meant it, we had like a home base. Um, it's like, I remember previous cups were just organizing on the floor, which is nice. I mean, it was kind of like a youth thing. We're like, yeah, we just like throwing in the floor, organizing. But it's nice that we had a place. But I think also it took away from us being everywhere. It just kind of like enclosed us in a point. Like, I think to a degree, the intention of having this in a pavilion maybe was to just like, just have them there and like speak their things there. And then they don't like annoy anyone because <laughs> they're like more enclosed. So yeah, it was an interesting job. I think there's a lot that like still needs to be processed and discussed. And then we will see a lot of like how and like how it implies into other things and like what actually comes out of COP in the next following months. Yeah, and I, I read about something that this app that people like people were scared to download because they could access your information or something like that or your location. And oh yeah, that was a thing. Uh, that was that was actually like so there was this app that it was supposed to have all the maps to get around in the cup. Thing is, uh, the second or third day, the Guardian came up with an article saying that the app actually like had a spy mechanism in the background and that you couldn't download it because if not, they had a way to access your phone. Uh, many people had downloaded and freaked out. I fortunately didn't download it. I, I was just not responsible enough to do it, which is a good thing though. Uh, but it was... I remember like it was the second or third day so it was like very like unsettling like just from the beginning to just hear that the ad that was supposed to like be maps of the place was bad it was like mm, okay that's where we are um but it was very funny because like the entire place was a huge maze like you could not find anything it was very very big it was like from one point to the like to the final point of cop it was almost a kilometer you would walk so much every day and there was no actual like plans or indications anywhere so I think a lot of us got I, I feel like I wasted so much time just getting around which is so annoying yeah I heard that from other people as well and that's like really sad to me because it kind of is making it inaccessible for youth and like you said having us in, like people in a pavilion somewhere separate which is great to have a pavilion to be able to voice your to voice your voice but 
where are you gonna like how are you gonna be in the negotiation rooms and how are you gonna be close to everybody who's doing those negotiations right so I totally hear what you're saying with that that's so annoying but at least you had a place this year (laughs) and not on the floor so and it it had a coffee machine so youth were happy yeah okay always the coffee machine that's (laughs) yeah you can't be anywhere without a co- I cannot be anywhere without a coffee machine. So I so yeah, I would honestly purposely go to the youth pavilion just for coffee, like every few hours. But hey, I bet you met a lot of people and networked there because of that. So it worked out. <laughs> so is was there a lot of greenwashing at COP27? I feel there's always a lot of greenwashing at any COP. Um Inside COP itself, uh, I think the like biggest sponsors that you could find was probably Coca-Cola, which just sponsored the whole thing, which was funny because like, it stopped sponsoring it like in the middle of the second week or something uh, because it received a lot of backlash for it. And then like all of a sudden they were giving Coca-Colas away. It's like, it was so funny. I, like they didn't like, I guess they just didn't make a profit out of them anymore. So they were just giving them away. You could just wrap a Coca-Cola. It was so weird. Uh, which you had been paying for the like later, like the early weeks. So it, it was weird. Um, then there was Polafon who was um, giving us all SIM cards, which I found so like, unsettling because like the wi-fi didn't work inside cop um for a long time like when the all the leaders were there the wi-fi didn't work um which was such like frenetic and like very stressful time because like so much of the work we do depends on the internet so like i was inside there i was like i'm here but i can't do anything and it was super 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 like stressful um but yeah like all the data that we had to, to make phone calls and everything came from SIM cards that we're giving to us by COP itself, which I found very creepy because like if they're giving us like apps that spy on us, like why would they not give like, you know, but you had no really other options. So like we just took it, I guess. Um, I think the biggest, it's not even greenwashing, it's just loving the biggest like data that like shock it it doesn't even shock me anymore but at the same time the fact that it's so bad it did shock me like the fact that there were 600 lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry and like I thought like COP26 was bad but why did it it keeps getting worse like it it's very sad because like we have all these campaigns of like keep pullers out and they seem very that it works like they seem very vigilant and the like the public opinion is very on it but every time they just increase like there's a 25 percent increase since cop 26 and already in cop 26 they were like bigger than any delegation like they were bigger than brazil which is the biggest delegation they were so like they're bigger than any government they're just there existing like between us so it's definitely something i was not inside uh negotiation rooms although i was in the hallways and you could see the like faces and stuff which i found super interesting but I've been told that there was a lot of lobbying inside the inside the rooms. And I, I mean, I think personally, the reason why they're bringing more fossil fuel lobbyists is because they're they're intimidated <laughs> and they want they're like, I oh, hope so. <laughs> yeah, like, as I, I, I think, I think like they were like, oh, great. People are like actually starting to believe in climate change. <laughs> like we should bring more yeah. people there and make sure they don't believe in it. <laughs> Actually, I really strongly like believe in like me and other people that like it was done in Egypt, like the copy itself was done in Egypt in such a like 
also like such a like excluded place like it's more shake so like social society couldn't be in it because they were scared that like there was more social society than ever and they're scared of that because like the more social society there is there's more there's more accountability there's more pushing there is in general more ambition and they're scared of it so they just did a copy in Sharma Sheikh. Um, but I'm very glad that there was there was a society there. Um, not sure how we all got there, honestly, still a miracle to me. Um, but there was a society there. There was a lot of youth, uh, more than I expected. So I think that like even in the worst case scenario, which is you know like Egypt, next year Dubai, uh, society finds a way there, which is very nice. Yeah, and I think even though cops are so inaccessible I think there was and especially being in Egypt I think a lot of youth still were able to get there which is amazing in my opinion and everyone I'm pretty sure got back safely so I'm happy that miracle honestly like yeah. that was when I got home, I was like mm, miracle you're alive and good <laughs> yeah that's I was like I was like the whole time here I'm like watching I'm like listening to the news and I'm like please like let everyone be okay <laughs> like everyone getting home safely like the only thing I heard was like someone lost their computer or got their computer damaged. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. We can live with that. Yeah, absolutely fine. Yeah. Chill. <laughs> we can live with that. No, it, it could have been way worse. I like my, like I was with a delegation of 20 youth and I was expecting like way more drama to go down. Honestly, it went like for the circumstances and like where we were and everything. It was way better than like so much could have gone wrong and it didn't so I'm very grateful for that yeah it's I was like for especially for like LGBT youth like I was very nervous for that but I mean it seems like everything was fine <laughs> I mean from what I've seen so I yeah I feel like there was a lot of so it felt like as long as you were accredited as like cop they respected you I have a little story that I went outside like I went to a dinner and left my tradition home because it was a dinner it was not a cop so I didn't need it and when I tried to go back to the hotel by myself uh, they thought I was a prostitute because I was a young woman alone <laughs> so like I, 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 I'm pretty sure I almost got into sex traffic like into sex trafficking um, but thankfully uh, my director who is David Villasenor saved my ass uh, very very gladly and came to pick me up but I think like as long as you have, were wearing an accreditation and a badge that like said that you were UN you were untouchable like so that's nice well I'm sorry you experienced that that's awful yeah no it, it was it was like there was this woman who were like yeah I think it's because you're a young woman and I was like eh, okay but I've heard like history, like my roommate was there too. And she's also explained things of like, yeah, we were alone and like taxi drivers, like not listening to them and like trying to like drive them another way around or like things, creepy things like that. But I'm very thankful like nothing actually happened, at least to people I know. So, yeah, well, I'm very grateful for that as well. <laughs> That's absolutely terrifying. Um so what is a key takeaway from COP27 that gives you hope? You know, there's been a lot of backlash from the conclusions of COP27, which happens every year because like when you are outside of it and you see what these people have come up for two weeks, you look at it and you're like, hmm, that's bullshit, um, which is fair and a total like 
okay scientific outcome of it but I feel like when you're there and you see all the drama that goes uh inside the tension the tears the blood um it's like you know like you could see the 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 negotiators like struggling the last two days those people had not slept in good knows like who knows and they were like all so worried you could see the worriness in their face and they're actually humans who are trying and I think there's to me um uh, something there like to me as a person to know that they're actually humans trying to do something inside of the rooms and I've seen them I, I, I've seen that they actually care some of them and there's people in there that care um I think it's been a, a good takeaway for me also I know like people are like oh yeah it's a small win but it is a win like we have a loss and damage fund and that is huge like we struggled to put loss and damage in the agenda the fact that they actually approved it it's a win it's a huge win and like I think as an activist we have this uh type of behavior we don't actually celebrate anything we just criticize things which it's, it is our job, but I think it is very important for us to acknowledge our wins and the fact that we got 200 countries almost to agree that there is uh, there is a need and agree on a fund and a mechanism for it. Even if it's not like absolutely um, specified by now, it, it is a public statement that they acknowledge that there needs to be a sense of morality and like... Um, depth to these countries that was not acknowledged since now so i think it's very important um that gives me a bit of hope and i think like as many others probably have have told you uh just being there and being with youth and being with people that are doing amazing things because like what happens at the cop is that there's a lot of negotiations going on but there's also thirty thousand people there who work at your field and are doing the same things as you are doing like in very different ways and just learning from people that are doing good things and that like are trying i have amazing projects in mind it's very inspiring so yeah i would say the people and the small loss like small wins are the best so yeah it's so true and i think as activists like you said we don't always celebrate those wins and that's how we get burnt out and I think, exactly. I'm, yeah, like I, if I'm just sitting there doom scrolling all day and like only thinking about like the bad things that are happening, I'm burnt out and I almost like can't act because I'm just so tired. And I'm like, what do I do? There's so much to like do. And it's like learning that you can put something down and you can still be okay with your win because we will be back and ready tomorrow, but take your win today. Exactly. Like celebrate today and like, you know like complain tomorrow but I think there's a very important part of activism works and for in order for us to say that we do need to acknowledge when it does <laughs> you know like because I feel like we don't <laughs> and activism has worked and like many of the youth movement has brought incredible change to the world like there's incredible change in acknowledgement there's incredible change in padding and a lot of that has helped to uh further ambition things like loss and damage and you know like take the win, you know, like, please take the win, like, complain tomorrow that the fund is not enough, that there is no specific mechanisms, that will be in Dubai, like, worry about that tomorrow, like, we will complain about that in Dubai, but please take the win for once, um, and complain tomorrow, I think that's the biggest say I would say. Yeah, and there's so many, like, activists as well, so, like, especially the people who are at COP, and you guys were there being able to listen to those negotiations, and protest, and raise your voices, and, 
you know, from home I was watching, but it obviously wasn't the same tension that you guys were feeling and the same emotions, you know, it was very different emotions and that's okay. Right. But being home, you know, I didn't have to be as stressed out as everyone there. So I can pick up on some things that you guys need to rest. And like you said before, you still need to process everything that happened. A lot of people were telling me what they need, like they needed to process everything that happened in that two weeks because it was a lot to process. So, you know, I think it's also a great, great being able to build community with other youth so other people can do things while other people are resting. So Absolutely. I'm actually very, very grateful that I was able to like meet my delegation there because like I'm now with the delegation of 20 youth, which is the Global Youth, uh, youth Leadership Council. And I haven't met them before because like we've worked together for a year, like for almost six months and I have never met them. And just to be there with them, like living and that's formed such a team that I've now been like very hopeful that we can do amazing things together just by like the team building that was in COP. Uh, I love that. I heard that too from someone else and I'm like, oh, I love that like, because I work remotely too. So I don't get to see all the other activists I work with. So uh, living vicariously through you, I <laughs> love that. <laughs> It will come to you, I promise. Just give it time. <laughs> Working online does suck a bit, but you will we'll see it's worth it at the end. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and discussing everything that you have talked about. And is there anything else that you want to say before we end? Dubai might be a shit show, but we're ready for it. I mean, you know, like, there's been, like, this talk all over COP of, like, are we actually going to Dubai? And, like, everyone looked at you and was like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> so I guess just we'll see next year. But I, I think we need to mentally prepare a lot for Dubai. So I'll start doing that now. Oh, mentally preparing now. Okay. That's... Mentally preparing Dubai, yeah. I'm preparing right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. you. I know. I really hope I can come. I'm I'm actually going to COP 15, so we'll see. We'll see if I can be able to do COP, COP 28. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Oh, so many COPs. <laughs> so thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. So that wraps up our first guest speaker that we highlighted on this episode, and we are going to be moving on to our second youth activist who attended COP 27. Our next youth activist is Finjur Rakar Andersen, who is a 20-year-old Icelandic climate activist currently studying global sustainability science at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He has been active in the youth climate movement for over three years and has in that time taken on several leadership roles in various groups and organizations, as well as carried out research on nature conservation and ecosystem restoration. Currently, he is a board member of the Icelandic Youth Environmental Association and the chair of their climate committee. He is also the Icelandic UN Youth Delegate on Climate Change, and as such, he attended COP26 and COP27 as part of the Icelandic National Delegation. So with that, I'd love to welcome Finjur to our podcast. So hi, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah, so I'm really excited to hear about your COP27 experience. So do you mind just describing your experience at COP27 and being a youth activist? What was that like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had the, the pleasure to be the Icelandic uh, United Nations Youth Delegate in the Icelandic delegation. Uh, so I probably had a more formal role than a lot of other uh, youth activists at COP27. Uh, and I also had this role at COP26 last year. 
Um, so I was there in a, yeah, in a bit more of a formal capacity where I was uh, inside my, my country's delegation. Uh, so I had a different type of information uh, access than, than other people. So I was quite aware of what was happening in the negotiations at, at uh, all the points uh, throughout the two weeks, which was super valuable. Actually, I was able to get a much rounder and fuller picture of, of what was going on and what, what I thought of uh, how things were currently standing. Uh, so in that regard, I was quite privileged uh, and I tried to share that knowledge and, and inside information uh, as much as I could uh, without you know, crossing any boundaries with other youth activists around me. Uh, so I was, I was uh, joined at the conference by uh, three other people from my association, actually. So it was really nice to also have their support uh, and, and feeling that, yeah, not only them, but also other youth activists that I, that I knew and then got to know were really supportive. And I think, I think that's one of the, the really great things about the, the youth activist movement is that we're really supportive of each other. Uh, so that's something I definitely felt. Um, also having the, the youth and well, the children and youth pavilion for the first time was really helpful in my opinion, just to have that one space for us who generally don't have a dedicated uh, area for ourselves to uh, either relax or come and connect and share our ideas and opinions and build movements. So that was uh, also a really powerful aspect of my experience as a youth activist at COP27. Um, but then, of course, my influence was quite limited, I feel. You know, I spoke with my delegation as much as I could, uh, tried to gather as much intel as I could to uh, make my opinion as valid as possible. Um, but then my delegation is also there uh, with a mandate from my government. And I have very little power to influence my government in any very decisive way. Uh, so as much as it is nice to see more youth involvement at these COPs uh, year after year, and the fact that the language is being included in the final decisions on the importance of youth inclusion and inclusion of other non-state actors, um, our real decision-making capacity is still quite low. Uh, so that's something that I think is important to for us to keep in mind, both as youth activists, as we gain a bigger platform to express our opinions, not to forget about the fact that having a platform to speak is still different from having the power to, to influence decisions. And that's where we really need to get to. Um, so yeah, it was, it was nice to speak to my delegation. There was also some, some Icelandic uh, and Nordic politicians who were there. And I got to speak to one of my ministers uh, quite a lot. Uh, had some, yeah, both some, some casual conversations, but also more formal meetings. And there actually um, was a, a rare occurrence where I really felt that uh, she was listening to me. She was taking in my ideas, uh, coming, yeah, seeing where I was coming from, um, agreeing with some of my opinions uh, and saying that she would, you know, take decisive action to uh, voice my opinions to other people uh, that she worked with uh, in the government. Uh, so in, in that regard, that was something I felt was really, really nice uh, to finally feel that I was really being heard and that my opinions and views are being taken forward to the people that need to hear them the most. Uh, so I think that would probably be my highlight uh, in terms of my experience as a, as a youth activist at COP27. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm glad that you got that experience to be listened to and have your ideas like validated, which is awesome feeling. Um, so since you went to COP26 as well, would you do you feel like since there was a youth pavilion this year and not one on COP, in COP26, did you feel like any difference between that and like that this one was more inclusive? 
Uh, I'm not sure if the fact that a children and youth pavilion was present this year and compared to last year made any difference in terms of the inclusivity of it. Uh, it definitely gave us a better platform to express ourselves uh, in terms of, you know, getting our ideas out to other young people and, and either even other people who, who uh, are there in different capacities than as youth activists. So that was that was really nice. Uh, but what I do think happened uh, in, in the case of quite a lot of people is that it was difficult to get a visa, it was difficult to get a hotel, difficult to get funding to travel uh, or funding for anything else for that matter. So as usual, um, the capacity for young activists uh, was very limited compared to other people who come in more formal capacities or have uh, stronger financial uh, ground to stand on. So in terms of inclusivity, I think it was unfortunately still quite limited when it comes to young people. And, and um, I think generally just, just from judging from the people I met and the people I, I listened to, uh, there were perhaps a few more this year than last year. Uh, and the representation from, from different areas of the world might've been slightly better, uh, but still the, the, the people from Europe and, and uh, Northern America, uh, I think they had an easier time accessing the space, uh, both in terms of their funding and, and also getting there and the people that supported them in getting there. So there's still a long way to go when it comes to increasing uh, the representation of youth activists at these COPs. Uh, but yeah, as with most things at these COPs, it's slowly improving. So that's maybe what I can say on that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And a hundred percent, I feel like it's always the more richer countries that are able to get their people there and get more inclusivity there and representation. And yeah, that, that definitely needs to improve. But thank you for bringing that up. So did you feel there was a lot of greenwashing at COP27? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I didn't see a lot of explicit greenwashing. Uh, maybe that's just because I was closer to the negotiations themselves than, than some of the pavilions uh, and the side event areas where there may have been maybe more uh, greenwashing, uh, but I did definitely experience some uh, quite harsh bending of the truth by several actors. Uh, and of course, I'm guessing other people have also ra raised this point already for the fact that um, a big multinational like Coca-Cola was a big sponsor of the event. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that approach, uh, giving such a big company with a questionable environmental track record, um, this platform, uh, or the even the you know, just uh, accreditation or, or credit for being the sponsor of such an important global event on such an important topic. Uh, so that's definitely one area that I would, you know, question for next time and say that you could give the platform uh, to another sponsor that is doing a lot better when it comes to climate change and, and other environmental issues. Um, but yeah, I didn't see a lot of explicit greenwashing, which is a positive point. Uh, but I also think that companies and, and institutions are becoming better at hiding their greenwashing and, and bending the truth a bit rather than straight out lying. Uh, so I guess that can also be a form of greenwashing. And then there's, if I just bring it to my my personal experience and what I saw actually, because I was following the negotiations a lot more than the pavilions, as I said, then there are quite some countries that do play around with uh, their narrative in, in a dodgy way where they uh, explain their stance uh, based on certain facts that you know may not be their uh, 
the actual reason why they have a certain opinion or, or stance in the negotiations. So I think there's various types of greenwashing that we have to look out for, uh, various ways of, um, yeah, I think it's moving away from lying about uh, what, what countries or, or companies are doing and more towards bending the truth, as I mentioned. So I think not a lot of explicit things, but there, if, if I would have been looking out for it, especially, then I would have probably caught quite a lot more, I think. Yeah, and when you bring up like certain countries saying things, I just think of like the United States because I'm here. And I think about how like Biden just went, President Biden just went to COP for like a day or two, I heard. And he literally just basically talked about our new like in infrastructure bill and was like, yeah, it's doing so much, but like didn't actually like do any negotiating or talking about like what he plans to do. So I, I don't know. That's just crazy that he's going to go all the way there for nothing. But yeah, that's just one example. So thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Um, I think maybe also on that point, I think it's important to recognize that um, these conferences are a political sphere. Uh, and as much as they wanted to brand this COP as the implementation COP, the real implementations happen in the local communities on the ground, back in the countries after the conferences and between them. Uh, and it's maybe not the, the the role of world leaders to be negotiating per se or, or um, announcing any super concrete local uh, initiatives or actions, but more to advance the, the global political narrative and the ambition on a global scale. Um, and when it comes to that, I think there are some countries who are doing quite a good job uh, and also just explaining that, you know, uh, the inflation reduction bill that you mentioned is quite an important one. Uh, it's historic for the US. And even though there's a lot of work to be done, uh, it's, it's important to recognize uh, when, when good progress is made. So I think that aspect of it was nice, despite the fact that, yeah, sometimes uh, countries like the US can bend the truth a bit as well. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good at that here. <laughs> so what is a key takeaway from COP27 that gives you hope? Mm. I think Generally, when I've been speaking to people now that I've come back from, from the conference, I tend to, for some reason, focus on the negative points or the things that I would have liked uh, for there to be better outcomes on. And I was talking with a friend yesterday and, and she was like, yeah, I've, I've sort of just stopped following these cops because I've lost hope that they um, have any impact at all. And then I had this realization moment where I was like, hmm, maybe I need to shift my narrative as well to make sure not to only focus on the negative points or the negative outcomes, but also highlight and, and maybe, you know, elevate a bit the, the positive outcomes because there were quite some positive outcomes despite some key issues uh, not having enough progress. Uh, so concretely, I think, of course, what gives me hope is the fact that a 30 year long standoff between developing and, and developed countries on the loss and damage fund, that, that standoff has been uh, solved or at least, you know, it's, it's a start of, uh, there not being this massive tension between these traditionally separate groups. Uh, so that's something that we definitely should seek hope from is that the political landscape on, on the global level can change uh, and it is changing. Um, countries in the global north are recognizing their responsibility in a, in a larger capacity. Uh, so that's one area of hope. Another area of hope is simply the fact that I hadn't recognized or realized before, but the work that the IPCC is doing and the results that they're producing are being recognized in the reports, uh, in the final agreements of these COPs. Uh, there's a lot of explicit mention of um, 
yeah, the most important scientific findings. Uh, so the mention of the importance of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees uh, and how much worse the impacts would be if we go strive for two degrees instead. Uh, there's also for the first time a mention of the cryosphere. So the frozen areas of our planet, whether that be glaciers or, or permafrost or, uh, or any other frozen areas. And linked to the cryosphere mentioned in, in the text, there's also a mention of tipping points. And I think that's a, a key moment, uh, a key tipping point in itself actually is, is having this concept finally be recognized by the global, global community uh, because yeah, it's, it's a real threat. And having that finally mentioned and, and recognized uh, as a threat is something that gives me hope that it could be taken more seriously. Um, and I think more generally moving away from the, the concrete uh, decision, the text decisions, I think just walking through the hallways of this conference and seeing what was it 30 to 40,000 people uh, who are almost all of them uh, committed to solving the problem of climate change and, and other environmental problems, even if we have different ways of going about it and we may disagree on some fundamental uh, aspects of, of how to get there, it is quite inspiring to be in that space with so many people who in the end have yeah, quite a similar target to to make a, a better world and, and prevent uh, the catastrophe the catastrophe that we're currently heading for. So that's something I tried to take. Yeah, I, I tried to gain home, hope from from that fact as well. That there is so many people out there with so many cool initiatives that I will never even know about. So just it's it's quite comforting actually to know that there is a lot of things going out going on out there that we're not aware of, and we can. It, yeah, if we're in need of comfort, that's something that we can think about. You know, there's so many other people out there doing doing great things that there is still hope. Yeah, I think it can be sometimes very isolating when you're in your own little bubble. And then when we go out and we get to see all these people and see everyone who's actually doing the work and actually cares about doing the work, it that must feel, I mean, I haven't been in that in the cop spaces yet. So um, I think that's awesome that you get to experience that and all the people there get to experience that like feeling of not being alone because it can be so isolating, I think. And it's true, like we have to start somewhere. Like you mentioned, we, you know, it can feel like, oh, what, what really happened? But a lot did happen and a lot is happening. A lot of good is happening. And even the small wins, we have to start somewhere. And I know some people say, we'll say, well, it's not enough. And yeah, it'll, it will never probably be enough for, for now, but we have to start somewhere and getting the loss and damage fund started and even talking about it and discussing it when it wasn't even on the agenda originally is a huge win. So I, yeah, thank you for bringing that up and how, you know, we need to be hopeful in these small wins as well. Mm -hmm. And I think also, even if there are some topics like the, the mitigation topic, uh, which is all about reducing emissions and, and addressing the cause of climate change, uh, even if we didn't achieve enough progress on that front uh, and far from it, um, what I do see as a positive point from, from that sort of failure, I'm going to call it, uh, is the fact that there is so many, there are so many countries who are still committed to to a lot of emission reductions, who are still committed to higher mitigation ambition. Uh, we see the EU, uh, some other countries uh, in the Western world, uh, but also, you know, countries like the small island states uh, who are going to be impacted the worst, or yeah, am among the, the countries that are going to be impacted the worst, uh, that yeah, despite there not being a global agreement on the need for increased ambition when it comes to reducing emissions. There are quite a lot of countries around the world that are still committed to this increased ambition, regardless of what uh, the rest of the world says. So 
you know, even if we need um, big emitters to step up their game a bit, um, I think there's still some yeah, hope to be gained also from the fact that other countries are committed and are willing to go further than than what the final agreement states. And I think that's also something that we need to recognize is that this is only one venue for, for achieving progress on the climate crisis or on, on tackling the climate crisis and that we need to take these decisions and implement them concretely when we come back home, uh, but also go further. You know, there's nothing that says that we can't do more than what these agreements uh, say in the end. Uh, so that's something that I think is important to recognize and, and lift up in the narrative and when we as activists speak to the general public but also decision makers mm -hmm. yeah and i i love that you bring that up because local communities are doing i think way more than global communities in general and just like how like biden talked about you know these federal laws and bills and stuff like that but he doesn't talk about you know in my own state in new york how we have amazing environmental bills and legislation being passed and discussed so that's happening everywhere and we don't see that at the global conferences like cop so i know that's happening everywhere so it's really again great to bring up that local communities and countries and small countries are doing the work and we kind of need to step up the game with the global kind like with the bigger countries but you know we'll get there we're getting there yeah and maybe one also that i forgot to mention one thing that gives me hope and it's the fact that um you know these these agreements aren't binding in any way uh people aren't or countries aren't forced to do what what says in there even though they're strongly encouraged uh and even if there's a lot of political pressure from other countries for them to implement uh what they agreed upon um but a new addition and a sort of paradigm shift uh that came through in, in this year's decision is that multilateral development banks are encouraged to reform uh the way they they structure uh, their operations and the way that they um, give out money to certain projects in order to channel their finance into more climate-related uh, initiatives and, and projects. Uh, and even if it's not binding for these banks to do so, uh, the agreement does send a very strong political message to these entities. And it's very likely that they will take this message home to their heart and actually implement some of the change that they're asked to, asked to implement. So that's also something that gives me hope is the fact that we're moving beyond the traditional, uh, it's all on countries uh, to, to solve this crisis or on individuals and moving to other non-state actors such as uh, private companies and, and multilateral development banks who I do think will play and will have to play a major role. So that's also something that gives me hope is the fact that we're recognizing and, and broadening our scope as to who we involve and who we empower to take, to take action on this topic. Wow, I did not hear about that. So I will definitely have to do some research on that. That's awesome. And yeah, like we need more private sector and more just companies in general to kind of have the pressure put on them as well. Because I know there's the, what is it, the carbon footprint calculator, and it's supposed to make like us feel bad as individuals when it's like, we're just feeding into what they want us to do. So yeah, I'm glad that that was also brought up. You're bringing up great points. <laughs> Um, so yeah, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I think generally what I try to do uh, is is have a balance between the urgency and the empowerment uh, of people when I when I speak to them. It is important to recognize that we're in a very urgent state in our world. Uh, we're on a very dangerous path uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, we're not doing enough currently. The nationally determined contributions or the goals of each country uh, are not enough to get us where we need to get. 
And there are some real dangerous impacts that, that will come if we don't act soon. And by soon, I mean very, very soon. So that's the urgency part of it. But then also, you know, acknowledging that we do have the possibility to, you know, prevent all these uh, or most of these uh, catastrophic outcomes. And, and we have to recognize that there are so many opportunities, so many benefits to taking the drastic action that needs to be taken. And these words, urgent, uh, drastic, uh, transformational, uh, they sound negative or scary to, to some people, but actually what lies behind them are endless possibilities and positive outcomes that are totally unrelated to climate change. It's more economical for us to uh, take action sooner. It's, it's cheaper. We literally save money. Uh, we increase people's health or, or prevent, uh, yeah, a lot of negative health uh, side effects of, for example, burning fossil fuels. Uh, we managed to increase uh, the access to clean electricity to people all around the world. Uh, we can also couple this with bringing people out of poverty. There are so many pos positive outcomes that come along with taking drastic climate action, that drastic may not even be the right word, but but fast and, and active and inclusive action. Uh, so yeah, it's urgent that we do take action because the, the, the consequences are very serious. But it's also, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for us to, to engage with when taking these actions. Yeah, thank you for leaving us with that. That was very well put. And that's kind of like all that I try to preach in my podcast, I <laughs> hope. So, so thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up my episode with Veneur. And we are moving on to our final activists on this episode. Don't forget that we will have two more activists come on to the podcast next week. So stay tuned for that. It might it might be a little later in the week, like like this week was later in the week because I had COP15. Um, but it will be later in the week next week because I do have finals and I can't wait to be done with them. So I will get it out as soon as I can. So the next youth activist is Angela Zong. Angela is a first-generation Asian-American Harvard sophomore. She's studying economics with a secondary in environmental science, public policy, and a citation in Mandarin. Hailing from Houston, Angela has felt the impacts of natural disasters and climate change firsthand. Though she's currently on a gap year, she previously served as her school's first-ever Minister for Climate and Sustainability on the Undergraduate Council Executive Cabinet. Angela is passionate about youth climate advocacy and was fortunate enough to represent youth at the U.S. Institute of Peace Conference, Rotary World Peace Conference, ECOSOC Youth Conference, EarthX 2022, Stockholm 50, C40 City Summit, and many more. She currently serves as an intern for the UN Capital Development Fund and enjoys figure skating in her free time. If you want to learn more about Angela, you can check the description in the podcast, and I have her website linked there. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest speaker, Angela. Okay, so hi, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about your experience at COP. So do you mind describing your experience at COP27 as a youth activist? Yeah, for sure. I think going into COP, there's a lot of uncertainty about like whether we should even go this year, um, what sort of safety precautions look like. Um, but we went and I think it was pretty smooth, fortunately for us. I know for other people, like there was a lot of visa problems. Um, and so that's definitely something to work on for next year. Um, but I would say 
in terms of like actions, it would be, it's a lot harder this year than in previous years to um, have some sort of demonstration. It, you just have to get it approved ahead of time. Um, and so I think that was the biggest question mark going in, but thankfully we were still able to have some approved actions on like Palestine, loss and damage and things like that. Perfect, that's awesome. So did you enjoy your experience there? And yeah, for sure. I think, okay, so there's the blue zone and the green zone. And the blue zone, um, I think going in this year, I knew it was going to be overwhelming. So that like mentally prepared me in some ways. And so I think I had a better experience because like going in, I knew like, okay, this is going to be like a huge ride. Like, how do I break it down? Um, and so like better than last year in that sense. The green zone was interesting. It was like, almost like a Lollapalooza, like music festival cross with like Las Vegas moment. Like it was a lot of like, corporate sponsorships a lot of instagrammable like photo spots um and like random I don't know it's just like like very synthetic like you could tell they had just built it for cop um and I think it's important to have a green zone but this year like it's I feel like people who weren't involved in cop like it would have been harder for them to go dress to the green zone anyway so that one is going to be a no for me this year but I think there were a lot of like space constraints so they did the best that they could with what they had so from that type of experience in the green zone it's funny that it's called the green zone but did you feel there was a lot of green washing in mm. yeah absolutely I think that the response to like the Coca-Cola sponsorship was like sort of indicative going in of what this was going to look like. Um, and then I also heard this year that they had the most like fossil fuel lobbyists um, with different delegations. So that I wasn't a fan of that. I think that intrinsically creates greenwashing because the incentives of like negotiators and party leads and stuff are now skewed because of the presence of these people and like in such a large presence. Um, in terms of like actions, like I do think the negotiators are working like as diligently as possible to like represent their country. And like, it's great that there's a loss and damage fund now, but a lot of questions still just keep getting pushed off. Um, and so I'm a little bit frustrated about that, to be honest, but like that is sort of the narrative of COP going in, right? Like institutional change is slow and incremental, like blah, blah, blah. So I don't think that like, it like it was a surprise to anyone for sure. Yeah, I, I've heard very similar things. It's no surprise that some, obviously a lot of things are going to go slowly, but we need more fast change. And I think that will happen more at local levels, but you know, that's the whole point of going to COP and the whole point of COP is to speed up change. But anywho, mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> So what is a key takeaway from COP27 that gives you hope or just any key takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. I think one is the people that I was with this time exposed me to a lot of different mindsets about what activism and change and like community building and grassroots and like all these terms, like what does that actually look like? Um, because like I think the international perspective is very skewed by the global north, especially I think with the like a lot of youth are only able or feel that they are only able to make change because of like media presences and having like platforms and opportunities. But I feel like this time because I was going in with that exposure already, I was able to learn a lot about like what people are doing on the ground and how that can translate to international change. Um, and so I think that was the biggest 
point for me like even though I'm on a gap semester right now like I think COP was probably one of the most like intellectually stimulating experiences just because of the people I was around and like the exposure to different perspectives and narratives was super cool and so like I think just for that reason alone like it's worth going to COP at least once and making that type of connection and network because these are the types of people who you like will be like by your side like fighting alongside with you for like the next years and so and then the other takeaway I think was about the Children and Youth Pavilion. Um, so a lot of people are super excited that it's the first ever Children and Youth Pavilion. So just like having a space where people are able to like chill and like talk and do some work, get some coffee is just so meaningful because every other like delegation or cohort has some sort of space like that until and except for Children and Youth until now. And I think the other thing was that the funders of the pavilion, um, I think CIF, like C-I-F-F, um, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, something like that. They um, like made sure none of it was like branded. Like it was really focused on children and youth. And so anytime like the negotiators would walk by in order to go to the negotiations, they would pass by the super bustling pavilion. And you could tell there was always like a lot of energy and effort going into it. And so I think that was super meaningful and really put us on the radar in like a substantial like way that we hadn't seen before. So that was super exciting to be part of. Yeah, I think I've heard very similar things as well, you know, with community building in general, and that's after COP and that's during COP as well, and getting to meet people who are like-minded and from all over the world. And it's just so, I, I'm so jealous and I'm so, like, I'm living vicariously through all of you through all podcasts. And it's like, <laughs> but I'm so glad that you guys got that experience because it is so important to know that we aren't alone in these, these times and in our own thoughts and in the climate crisis in general, we're all here together and we're all fighting for this together. So I really love that. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, I think one interesting element um, that, that that I recently changed my perspective on is like the role of like mitigation versus adaptation. Um, because I think a lot of people are drawn to climate change as like an area to work on because of this pull towards like the theoretical future generations, um, which I totally agree with. But like, so like the argument is that like, oh, like future generations are going to be impacted more and more and children and youth are like the closest proxy we have to these future generations. And so it's especially important for us um, to be invested in like the future on like what climate action looks like. I totally agree with all of that. I think that that does make a really compelling case for mitigation. Um, but I do think it's sort of disproportionate that like the vast majority of efforts is going towards mitigation because like we like to think a lot about these future generations, but also if the impacts are happening now to like global South countries, I think for the global North to be focused on mitigation is literally to say that they don't care about like the effects that are going on right now in people's livelihoods. And so I think that in the future, like adaptation is definitely a somewhat neglected area like I think it's been doing better and better over time but I would love to see more efforts focused on that I know there's a couple of youth networks who work on adaptation so I'm super excited to see what they're up to but I think overall um, that's definitely an area that I want to like personally be more well-versed on but also hear from like others about what they think since I don't know it's just like like the global north cannot exist without like the extraction of this global south like right and so like to be part of that process as like someone from the U.S. like I want to like make sure that I want like can do whatever I can to address adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah it's so true and such a great point because 
honestly, we're talking about mitigation for future generations, but people are being impacted, especially in the global South and frontline communities right now. So saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to do this for years to come, but it's like people are being impacted now. Climate change is here. The crisis is here. And it's going like not to be like the doomist, like, but it's going mm-hmm. to get worse if we don't start to adapt and mitigate things now and not do that in the future. And we can, we have time now to go back on that. We have time to, now to stop extracting fossil fuels and stop exploiting and extracting from the global South. So I really am glad that you brought that up. No, for sure. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I I think it'll get better and better over time for sure. But it's a question like how much time do we even have for these like sacrifices? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you feel like this was brought up a lot at COP27 or was it kind of like, again, pushed to the side? Um, I think like there was maybe more effort than I had seen previously, but like the bar is so low here that like, yeah, you can do it and call it progress, but it's not the sort of change that I think needs to happen for sure. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's very true. But is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I think that's it for now, but I'll definitely let you know if something comes to mind later for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. I really hope you enjoyed the guest speakers that were on this episode. Again, all of these guest speakers and all these youth activists are really paving the way for the future. And it's an honor to have them on the podcast and hear about their experiences and not just hear about their experiences at COP27, but to hear about the amazing work that they're doing outside of COP. Because a lot of people think, okay, well, the conference is over, everything's solved. (laughs) And it's like, no, a lot of the work and most of the work, not a lot, all of the work happens outside of COP. It's the local communities. It's the individuals who come together to create huge groups that come together to actually make the change. So I'm really appreciative of everyone who listens to their experience, who is listening to their experiences and wants to learn more. Um, And I'm, I'm really appreciative and I know the guest speakers are as well. We'll have one more episode featuring COP27 youth activists, which will be coming out in the next week or so. So make sure to stay tuned for that. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. Always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.